You're listening to the Native Plants Healthy Planet Podcast, presented by Pinelands Nursery. Here are your hosts, Fran Chismar and Tom Knezic. Welcome back to the Native Plants Healthy Planet Podcast. We're back with a rooted discussion episode, and this is presented by Pinelands Nursery. I am Fran Chismar. And I am Tom Knezic. Welcome to episode 80, which that's a, another milestone. Under I'm our... waiting for that 100. <laughs> yeah. That, well, that's, well, I guess 20, I keep waiting for like away. us to get canceled before <laughs> yeah. that happens. I'm like, oh, we're one closer. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, today we're joined by Kate Ankaya and, uh, and Shannon Curry. To talk about green roofs, which has been shockingly hard for me to spell. I keep wanting to make it like like hooves. I want to spell it with a V and an E and an S at the end. And then I, I had to look it up eventually and say, no, my brain is playing tricks on me. It is R-O-O-F-S. One of the things I love about this podcast, and I love so many things about it, is – and we've mentioned this probably a million times – that when we started it, we had a list of topics and guests that we wanted to have on. And we still haven't gone through that initial list mm-hmm. of like 10 to 20 people, and we keep going off on different tangents and topics as it becomes relevant to the podcast or or just we become curious to learn more. And I'm going to have to start paying uh, Daryl Kabeski commission because yeah, this was finder's a, not, a finder's <laughs> fee because this is – besides being a former guest, this is the second uh, – recommendation he gave mm-hmm. us of what he thought would be good and and we agreed and fortunately everyone was willing to to meet with us on such yeah. short notice so we're excited yeah so i've learned through uh through well a lot through 80 episodes but one thing i've learned is i'm terrible giving the introductions so i tend to let the guests introduce themselves a little bit so kate why don't we start with you and uh tell us who you are where you're from and and um a little bit about yourself Sure. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be on episode 80. I'd rather be on episode 100, but um, <laughs> I'll be okay with 80. So, it's going to be a star-studded spectacular. <laughs> It'll be a clip you can show. Be a part, <laughs> yeah, you can be a part of it. Everyone's invited. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you. Um, so, again, my name is Kate Ankaya. I'm a landscape architect and co-founder of Living Roof Sync, which is a design-build company. We're based in North Carolina. We opened the company in Raleigh, North Carolina, and moved it to Asheville shortly after. Um, we design and build green roofs across the southeast, and um, really excited to be here and talk about plants and learn from true plants people. Um, again, I'm a designer, not a horticulturalist, but um, learning a lot and loving the exploration of plants and green infrastructure. Awesome. Awesome. And Shannon, how about yourself? Yeah, thanks. Well, I, like Kate, I'm, I'm very happy to be here. Um, and I'm the marketing director for Hoffman Nursery. And so we're a nursery that specializes in grasses and grass-like plants uh, based in central North Carolina. And the nursery has been in business since 1986. So 35-plus years of, of growing a, a pretty narrow range of plants. And um, I've been with the company almost 15 years and one of the great joys for me of my job is promoting plants and what they do for us, um, both, you know, in terms of health and well-being, the environment, the whole shooting match and green infrastructure is a big part of that. Mm-hmm. So understanding how plants can be part of nature-based systems to solve problems and, and bring all that joy. So that's kind of my job, which is pretty wonderful and um, we've worked with Living Roofs. We've supplied plants with them for a while and have really enjoyed that relationship. And I have learned a ton about green roofs uh, and working with companies like Kate's. And that really leads us into a, a first question, which is, what is a green roof? I'm sure there's plenty of people who are familiar with that or have at least seen one. But um, or maybe there's multiple definitions. Yeah. I'm, I'm not really sure. So we're hoping that you can kind of lead us in the right direction with that answer. Sure. So a green roof is just as it sounds. Um, It's vegetation on a roof um, and the green roof assembly, how we how we talk about it or the build up. There's a lot of different ways to build a green roof, but basically on all green roofs, the assembly starts above the roofing or waterproofing membrane. And then um, it's a series of 
of layers. Uh, I'll give an example for a traditional built-up system, um, but uh, not to make it too confusing, but there are a lot of ways um, to build a green roof, a lot of different products out there, but most of them are composed of, of the same layers, which, again, you have your membrane or roofing um, membrane layer, and then the green roof starts above that. You have a membrane protection layer or a root barrier, as sometimes we call it, a drainage layer, and sometimes that's like a mat or some sort of drainage aggregate um, with or without a water retention, and then a filter fabric, and then the growing media, and then that is um, can be a variety of depths, and then the plants, the fun part. And the growing media and the base components really influence the um, types of plants that you can grow on that particular system. Awesome. And one thing to point out is that the growing media is different than regular garden soil. So we use a really lightweight, um, very coarse uh, soil composed of different aggregates, fines, and compost. But um, that soil depth and the composition really uh, influences which plant species will thrive up there. Awesome. Before we go into more specifics, which we're, we're going to do, one of the things that I love that's kind of been a common theme on the podcast, we, we always talk about what we're losing in, in nature, like the land that we've lost and, and um, overdevelopment. But I've also come to really appreciate instead of focusing on what we're losing is what we've reclaimed. And um, we've had episodes where we talked about um, – a nature sanctuary at West Laurel Hill Cemetery where they're going against conventional burial sites and making a meadow or Monarchs in the Rough uh, with Audubon International where they're getting golf courses to actually become part of the solution instead of being a, a ecological mm-hmm. wasteland to to put these put these meadows in and steward them and and help be part of the solution with pollinators and it's Land that we lost that we don't think about that there's a way to actually get it back, and this is falls in that category when you think of uh, pervious services and what we're losing that you're getting green back, and and I love that. So uh, we thought maybe we can go in some of the benefits of having a green roof and and what those might be. Sure, um, green roofs just like a, a lot of. Green, our green infrastructure applications has have tremendous amount of benefits, and, and we call them co-benefits because as opposed to you brought up, um, or as we're talking about green infrastructure, we compare that often to gray infrastructure, right, which is a single-purpose system. It, it does one thing, and green infrastructure can do one thing, but it can also have all these other co-benefits or provide all these other ecosystem services. So as we're designing green roofs and we'll take an example of a project that is incorporating a green roof uh, for stormwater, right? We need to reduce the amount of stormwater coming off the building. We also need to reduce the rate in which that water is leaving the building. So we're, we're meeting a stormwater ordinance or using the green roof as a stormwater control measure. But we're also getting, whether the client cares or not, we're also getting enormous boost in biodiversity. We're getting cooler surface temperatures, the roof when covered in a green roof, or a sidewalk that has been, um, the edges have been depaved and we've incorporated bioswales or rain gardens, um, or we're depaving parts of parking lots. Anytime that we're using plants in the urban environment, we're reducing the temperature of that surface. And so that has an immediate impact to a building, for example, lowering cooling costs. But we also need to think about it in terms of the broader community benefit of what that means to have cooler temperatures in our cities, so combating urban heat island effect. So I can run through the benefits um, of green roofs, and, and I'll do that. But I like to give these more specific examples, too. And so... Um, you know, in terms of environmental benefits, definitely um, reducing stormwater and improving water quality and reducing the impact on our receiving waterways by having less stormwater and slowing the rate of stormwater runoff. Um, increased biodiversity that um, provides food and habitat for our local pollinator species, but also supporting our migratory 
songbirds or pollinators as they move through our cities, reducing urban temperatures, improving air quality, plants capturing and filtering out pollutants in the air. Um, and again, thinking about how as we increase um, vegetation in our cities, whether they're street trees, the original green infrastructure, I like to call the street trees that, um, we can begin to see the impact that we have beyond a particular project. And then, you know, some of the economic benefits, which to be quite honest, are the reason that people are incorporating green roofs into um, our cities and communities um, are reducing or extending the lifespan of the roofing membrane. So we talked about the layers of the green roof. And so when you think about universities or municipalities or hospitals um, that own a lot of roof, extending the lifespan of that roofing membrane makes economic sense. So for example, typically a flat roof, a waterproofing membrane needs to be replaced every 15 to 20 years. That's just the cost of building. Everyone just accepts that cost. Well, if you cover it with a green roof, we're looking at over 50 years of a lifespan of that original membrane. And that's because the conditions that break down that membrane material are insulated or are um, the green roof protects the membrane from those conditions. So UV ray. UV rays break down those plastics in the waterproofing mm -hmm. membrane, but when it's covered with a green roof, the green the UV ray can't penetrate to that membrane. Um, exposure to huge fluctuations in temperature. So a roof heats up a lot during the day, well over 100 degrees, cools down at night. So that fluctuation in temperature um, over time breaks down those materials. And so by covering uh, a membrane with a green roof, we... Uh, have a consistent ambient temperature of that roof top. And so again, that waterproofing membrane does not degrade as quickly. And we say 50 years at minimum, and that's because that's all the data we have right now, because that's how old modern green roof technology is in Europe. So they're pulling back these 50 year old green roofs and finding those membranes in really great condition because they've been protected all these years. So when you think about, um, you know, a lot of built uh, someone who owns a lot of building, the economic benefit or the life cycle cost um, is really tremendous, can be tremendous. And then here in the Southeast, um, another uh, economic benefit is just reduced costs associated with cooling our buildings. Awesome. Um, and then of course, managing stormwater. We talked about that um, a little bit earlier, but um, uh, we worked on a project in Asheville that, uh, use the green roof specifically to avoid having to incorporate underground stormwater storage. And so the green roof acted as a stormwater control measure. Um, they did not have to spend a lot of money and very, for a very expensive, great infrastructure system. And not just to incorporate that system, but then also to take care of it over time. That's very expensive to maintain those, um, those underground stormwater chambers. Um, so the green roof saved money in that respect, but this is a great example of it accomplishing that one economic benefit, but then we're getting all these great environmental benefits too. Um, and then of course, social benefits associated with increased access to views of nature, increased access to small nature experiences in our urban center, in our urban areas. And so um, those are sort of the, the main benefits, but um, there is a, an enor enormous list um, that Green Roofs for Healthy Cities, if you want to learn more about Green Roofs and their benefits, they have a very comprehensive list. I, I'm sorry. Oh, yeah. I, this is uh, <laughs> probably not the best question. What's the, what's the downside of a green roof? Yeah, so I'm not the right person to ask that, <laughs> but um, I would say some of the challenges associated with green roofs are they're heavier than a regular roof system. So for a new construction, we can work around that. We can design the roof to hold or the structure to hold that additional weight. For existing buildings, that can be a real challenge because it can be expensive to retrofit the structure of a building um, to hold a green roof. And then the initial cost is is more than a, a conventional roof, but um, you know you recover that cost, and then um, uh, the return on investment 
uh, grows as, as you move away from that initial installation. Um, so I would say that those are two of the main challenges. And then I guess the third challenge is that green roofing in the Southeast is not that, um, hasn't been around that long. And so it can be challenging to educate and, um, help people, uh, incorporate the right system for their project. Green roofs are still considered this sort of off the shelf thing that, Oh, there's only one way to build a green roof or I'm going to put a tray on my roof. And, and that's the green roof. So there's some, definitely some work to do in terms of education and outreach. I love that as you were talking, I was furiously writing new questions, and then as I was writing them, you were answering them. So I'm just <laughs> writing down, crossing off, writing down, well, I crossing off. I can see off. your notebook. <laughs> <laughs> I have I have a lot more to ask too, but no, it's uh, you know because I was thinking of things like water quality. I'm thinking of rain hitting a rooftop and all the pollutants that it's picking up, the impervious surface where it's going. You answered so many of these questions as as we were going lifespan, mm-hmm. um, but then I was thinking Shannon. Like how how did Hoffman Nurseries find this part of the business and like how did you start supplying this? And and over time, are you seeing an increase of how much your business is dedicated towards this type of infrastructure? That's a, a great question, Fran. And, and as Kate was talking toward the end there about some of the challenges um, some of it, I think is this interplay within the industry and understanding that there were most of us, many nurseries are already growing plants that are appropriate for some of these applications of green infrastructure, like green roofs or rain gardens. And for us at Hoffman Nursery, it really grew out of a focus probably 15 years ago on functionality and sort of as people got more and more interested in having their landscapes do more ecologically, you know, it, it was sort of moving beyond the, the aesthetic and that pretty plants, you know, recognizing that there was a real role um, that we could play in making, um, you know, moderating or mitigating the effects of increased development. So low impact development. And, and so as that became um, something we were really interested in and grasses, um, I love grasses. They're not, the easy sell sometimes that something that flowers or is much more obvious to people were. So for us that push toward functionality and like, these are plants that are easy to care for, that they have a lot of ecological value and that that's a good balance. So we were talking about function and then more and more, it became clear that green infrastructure. So the idea is as Kate alluded to gray infrastructure. So, you know, using a, um, uh, some sort of, um, you know, a, a ditch or, you know, built, built structures, concrete, you know, managing stormwater in those traditional ways started to morph more into using natural systems. And so we realized, wow, there are a lot of our plants that fit that model. So we started getting more and more interested in, are we growing plants that are appropriate for this? And we really were. Um, there are a lot of, particularly a lot of our native species of grasses that are really well adapted to some of those conditions, which we can talk about on a green roof or in bioswales or bioretention. And, and yes, there has been, that's been a much bigger part of our um, plant palette and our sales. We, we kept getting landscape contractors coming to us saying, I've got to, I need plants for bioretention or I need plants for a green roof. And they had, they had no idea what were the right plants um, so they look to us for recommendations and that got us realizing, you know, we've got to pay attention. There's a market here for one thing, um, you know, and also this is an opportunity to understand better how our grasses fit into green infrastructure and how we can be growing plants that, you know, promote better living for all of us. So it's been kind of a gradual journey for us. And, and I can imagine. And I would say that, just oh, to um, follow up on that, I think it's been a collaborative journey too, because I mean, we've been working with Hoffman for over 10 years. And just like a month ago, I was on the phone with Jessica chatting about a grass I wanted to try for this particular project. And so many of our 
you know, as we've been experimenting with grasses, you have been such a re- your company has been such a resource and other nurseries as well. But really, um, I always like to talk about the the resource that nurseries provide because so often, especially in the wholesale industry, you know, you're just supposed to put your order in and pick it up and you just think of, I don't know, I, I just think that there's so much information that you all have that um, you really benefit designers. Um, and so the designers need to be reaching out more and asking the right questions. Well, the best results always occur when, when it's a partnership instead of client-customer. It's it's really collaborative, and that's you know where I think in any instance you see the best results, and that's wonderful to hear because that means good work is being done, which you can't ask for more than that. Mm-hmm. Um, I was actually kind of thinking, and this can be for both of you, I guess I would – and, and I'm going way off. I'm all over the place here, and I apologize. <laughs> um you're creating a natural setting in an unnatural environment, and in a previous life for me and working with New York City Parks, you realize for as much as you love natives, you're, you're putting something in an unnatural condition. Um, so that's not always – you need something that it can't just – it may not necessarily have time to evolve. It has to adapt right away. So I understand the need where – yeah, I'm sure some natives are great, but you need a lot of cultivars and varieties to make that happen. Um because of the conditions, um, how much stewardship uh, occurs with this once it's done um, to make sure I, – I know there has to be a lot of prep for all the right things to make sure that it, it happens. But once it happens, I would imagine it's not maintenance-free. No, it's not. Um, and we like to compare the maintenance on green roofs as just like any sort of maintenance on other building systems. There is, you know, I always like this question because uh, it, I have the opportunity to s- dispel the myth of greeners as being these like overly highly maintained systems. And to be honest, that um, it's very minimal if they're designed correctly. I mean, this is really where it comes down to making sure that you're um, uh, selecting plants that work in the depth of the soil that the green roof has. Um, choosing the right plants for a geographic region, um, and then a planting approach that is going to accomplish what the project goals are. So if you have a green roof that is part of a rooftop amenity space, say it's a restaurant or an outdoor patio, that's designed very similar to something at grade, and there's an exacting aesthetic because the client wants there to be a very formal design. The maintenance on that will be different than the maintenance on a wild meadow roof that no one is sitting at, staring at the plants. Mm-hmm. And so you have to, it's, it's a, and, and this is the part that always bothers me about um, uh, when I see green roof designs. It's like, we don't have to design every green roof the same. It really depends on what the project goals are. And so, and if it's a rooftop that no one is seeing that is strictly performing environmental and economic functions, then it doesn't have to be in English garden with very fussy plants. It could be a true plant community that um, is, is thriving in those conditions. And so the maintenance can be as much or as little as you want. And that really comes down to what people are willing to look at and, um, and tolerate. Um, we like to, we really made a shift in how we were designing our green roofs about five or six years ago and um, really planting uh, a variety of plants, cool season, warm season grasses, as well as native and ornamental perennials, and really increasing the density in which we were planting. And that has really helped uh, keep the maintenance to a minimum because we don't have large areas of open soil for weeds to come in. We have proper soil depth, so a lot of different plants can thrive. And we are using a high diversity of plants so they can move around and find the right places that, and the, the right conditions that they like. So we really see these as systems or plant communities um, as opposed to um, you know, static sort of plants that just uh, sit and behave in a certain way. Is, is there... All right, Tom. After this one, you got to get <laughs> yeah. back on, get me back on track. Is there? Because I want to go back 
take a couple steps back because mm-hmm. I feel like I'm jumping ahead. But is there has there been a design or a project that was more successful than you had thought that that you know people looked at it and was like, wow, you know, if maybe it was a little out of the box or something that you didn't expect to be received as well as it was. There's a couple projects like that, and they all happened when we made that. Oh. Oh. <laughs> we were we were waiting for that <laughs> on cue. <laughs> um, she's really excited about those projects too. Um, <laughs> um, so, and those projects happened when we made that shift to um, sort of designing our plant, our plant, our designing our planting approach really. And honestly, my fingers are crossed. I was like, I hope this works out. And, and um, it was when we started designing very diverse um, sort of ground covered layer um, plant communities that then supported more of like an accent layer or a seasonal layer of, of plants. And so sort of these more, and um, some of them, they were more of a stylized meadow um, if they were visible um, from other rooftops um, and others are just a very diverse um, sort of native plant community. And um, we hadn't really done, we hadn't, we didn't do that before. We were working mostly with sedum and succulent species, maybe mixing in a couple perennials here and there, like Coreopsis, like, okay, we know that this is a great green roof plant, but in the Southeast, a lot of those sedums and succulents, they don't like the humidity. And so um, when we started testing out new plants and, and, and just sort of, we had a a lot of projects where we had free reign to kind of try things out. Um, We started seeing these patterns. And then when we um, made, there was one or two projects where we really made a shift and just went all in with this new approach and we were very excited. And and these projects have won awards Mm -hmm. and um, it was, it was having, you know, it was, it was learning from the plants. It was, um, you know, taking the time to experiment and then having the courage to try something new. Yeah. Awesome. I think I'll jump in for a second and say what, in Kate, in talking about this, I think there are real parallels between a lot of the planting design that's gone on recently in recent years, probably the last decade with, um, you know, the Dutch wave and planting, you know, going with matrix plantings, for example, and that layered approach um, that, you know, Thomas Rainer and Claudia West really laid out clearly for all of us in planting in a post-wild world. Also, the work that's being done with gravel gardens um, and, you know, coming from Europe, um, Beth Chatto's gardens and the work they've done in Europe. And then seeing that translated here in the U.S. where a green roof to me is not dissimilar to that gravel garden environment where you're challenging plants and choosing plants that do well in that very difficult environment. And that also helps with weed suppression and competition. So you're putting on their plants that thrive in that environment. And, and, and the parallel there is too, as well as Kate said, for good plant selection. And one of the difficulties I think for in, especially in the Southeast for people adopting green roofs is the lack of expertise in our industry yet we're working on it, but that's why it's so exciting to have companies like living roofs doing that. And there are other companies in other parts of the country too doing this, but it's um, I think it, it to me kind of is paralleling what's happening in progressive planting design as well. So what I wanted to, to kick back to is we talked about that, like uh, parfait of materials that you have on the roof, right? How thick is that? Like how I'm thinking about like a, a commercial rooftop and, just wondering how, like, how thick are all those layers that go on top? Did the buildup of the green roof? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're they're not that thick. They're um, um, not not that thick at all. So, what we the going with the plants? I'll, I'll work actually from the plants down. And so here in the southeast, uh, we use um, we try and propose a six inch growing media depth. Mm-hmm. Um, because that really opens up the variety of plant species that we can, mm-hmm. that we can, um, grow. And then I would say with all the other, I mean, depending on the buildup with all the other materials, you're looking at maybe another 
inch, inch and a half or two really? inches. Okay. So not, not that much. Yeah. yeah. When you and start again, listing off all these things, the, I'm like, is this like three feet thick? No. no, six inch thick. That's, that's really not a lot of, of space to work with. And I'm sure you're saying six inches of, of media would open up your plant palette, but there's yes. still only a, a certain, not that many things that'll grow in that little uh, amount of soil. What or would we be yeah. surprised? Yeah, maybe, how, maybe I'm surprised. Okay. I think you, I'm surprised, and um, and I also, I kind of like to see plants adapt to that, and they may not get as tall as they would mm-hmm. in a garden at grade, but that's okay too. They they um, you know they may be a little stunted, but they there are so many plants that thrive in that that soil horizon. And then we do have opportunities. We've incorporated like topography or like berms into the mm-hmm. growing media to support um, deeper rooting plants. Or if we wanted to incorporate um, shrubs or even small trees, mm-hmm. we've done that as well. Um, so, but the soil depth is really what determines the, the, um, the, the plants that you can yeah. grow on a green roof. Right. And that's, they're also, their levels in, some people tend to divide green roofs into sort of extensive and intensive, and that's a, more of a continuum. I think, Kate, would you agree maybe six inches or less might be extensive? There are green roofs that are basically, you know, planters. <laughs> when it, yeah. You know, that are so, much deeper, but that's a different set of parameters. Yeah. So we could, I mean, we, there are some pre-vegetated systems that we can go very, very thin for for uh, buildings that can't hold the additional weight down to like a two-inch system with a pre-vegetated wow. mat system. But these can be a little, they're more expensive, um, but we can go as, as thin as that here in the southeast. In the, in the northeast, we can go even thinner, but we'll talk about the southeast. That's where we are. Um, and then, yes, you can go all the, um, from there. You just, as you get a deeper soil, you increase your your planting options here in the mountains, we can get away with four or five inches of growing media and, and quite a, a variety of, um, of plants. But then off the mountain down in South Carolina, in the um, Piedmont and coastal plain, we, we definitely have hotter temperatures. And so really try and uh, land on that, you know, that six inch system and not talking um, or about- deeper. And then of course, you know, you can, you can um, add, deeper soil in certain areas. You could incorporate planters as mm-hmm. um, Shannon alluded to. I mean, we've, we've put, we worked on a project recently up in Virginia where we were putting 10 foot tall uh, redbud trees on a 10th floor roof. Um, and it's really fun to see trees flying through the air on trains. <laughs> <laughs> and they're so cute as they're like just on their first flight. Um, and then they, <laughs> They get planted up there. So um, it's amazing what, what we can do on these structures. But they, going back to Fran's point, these are these are uh, atypical settings for, yeah. for plants. And um, we're really asking a lot of, for that. Now, will, will it vary on soil depth depending on the amount of rainfall in a specific area? So say like the Pacific Northwest, you're getting X amount of rain a year and you're going to an area that doesn't get the same amount of rain. Does that change – your construction with soil depth, knowing how much wetter that could possibly be. Um, I didn't I know think, if that was an issue or not. Yeah, I don't know the, if I have the answer to that question. I think about here in the southeast. Um, you know, one one thing to just note the the growing media is really coarse, so it doesn't hold water. It drains okay. very very quickly, mm, right. um, so we don't have to worry about ponding or plants getting too soggy uh, okay. or anything like that. Um, but yes, the, the, the deeper the soil, the um, more water it can hold the, and the, the rooting um, habits of different plants. It also helps stormwater, um, uh, stormwater runoff and, and reducing the peak flow is definitely rated to soil depth. So okay. a green roof that has six inches of soil is going to retain a lot more Stormwater than a four-inch or a two-inch system. Um, I was going to say one of the one of the the parameters for plants that do well too is that what really helps is when you have a plant that will take up a lot of water when it's present, but doesn't necessarily need water 
all the time to do well. So that's why there are a number of warm season grasses, for example, that have really good capacity to uptake water, but they don't necessarily like to sit in water. Mm-hmm. Um, but you want, so you know what I mean? You don't want wetland plants and you don't necessarily want plants that are um, in super dry environments. You want ones that can take up that water when it's present. This is especially true in the Southeast. Um, and that's why sedums, as Kate alluded to, are, are, are really have a rough ride here for us with the humidity levels. Mm-hmm. And because of their photosynthetic process, don't uptake water quite the same way as for example warm season plants do so it's it's some of it's balancing those plant selections and the climate and the soil depth you know i was going to say because yeah, i would imagine project goals yeah because right? yeah. i would if imagine looking for stormwater the rooting of the plants is really important um you know the structure above the soil is really important because their evapotrans the evapotranspiration rates are higher and so it um it really depends on you know, what the project goals are. And that's the part that I feel like is just always missing about green roof design. It's that we just think about them as one type. We just, you know, there's one way to do it, but we really need to be making our designers think about the green roof like they are on all the other parts of the project, having a proper design process. What what are the goals of this? What is the end result? And then how do we design something that is going to meet not just the goals of the project, the budget of the project. I can't tell you how many times we see projects on like a public school building that has like very little funding, but has specified the most expensive green roof product on the market. Mm -hmm. And then the green roof doesn't go forward, but we know that they could have designed a green roof that was, a tenth of the cost and potentially could have that, that building could have had a green roof. But again, that goes back to education and outreach, but also just challenging our designers to, to, to think a little bit harder. How, how do you educate for, is, is that something that you actively do for your business to educate businesses of, of what they could have and what the potential is, or is that something that's, that's lacking generally in, in green roof technology to the, to the consumer? Um, That's a good question. Uh, We certainly could be doing a better job as a company. We're not an educational institution, but we have found over the years through learning really hard lessons, to be honest, in those early years of the business and designing and building green roofs like they do in Europe and Northeast and seeing them fail. um, We decided to start sharing that information. Um, And we do do a little bit of outreach and education, but we, we need to be doing more. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to participate in my very first podcast, because <laughs> this is a great opportunity to start talking about these things. Um, and so much of the information that's out there, I feel like it's, is really antiquated and um, just uh, not accurate and also not uh not tailored to the southeastern region. You know, again, it goes back to us thinking that they're all the same. I mean, why are why am I seeing uh, green roof detailing and designs that are appropriate for Seattle down here in um, in Raleigh, North Carolina? Yeah, we're well, not planting the we, same plants. We we see it all the time, just in in native plant plantings. You know, and and people say, well, I'm planting native plants, but are they? native to your area? Are they native to, you know, if you're in coastal plain, are you planting Appalachia and, and Piedmont and, and expecting the same level of success? You know, there's there's different areas and different, there's wetlands, there's uplands, there's everything you have to modify to that. And, and I would imagine with every condition is different. So every green roof has to be different. Totally. And talking about the plants, what are some of the plants that you see a lot in your designs or you, you like using in your designs? Um, and that you have a lot of success with. Well, we've been using a lot of grasses over the past five years, six years. Um, and there are definitely some uh, sort of greatest hits uh, or my, my best buds. Uh, and this is where I'll probably mispronounce all the names. That's okay. We're right with you. <laughs> okay. So one plant that... Um, we've been using a lot of is, is the sprobolus 
Scrobulus, you got it. Oh, right, Scrobulus. It's such a great warm season grass, and it um, has this this fine textured, soft quality. And when you see it in a planting on a roof in particular, and the wind is blowing, I mean, it just looks like water in these big swaths. Mm. It is it is stunning, and the color is really great. Um, we really use that a lot. We use a lot of the Carex's, um, the Aragostis. Spectabilis. Spectabilis. Um, Really love that. And, you know, down in the coastal plain, we'll use Muley, but I really love the Aragostis. It has that same pink late season quality, that frothy kind of haze, um, uh, but it's more appropriate, especially up here in in the mountains. So we, um, and then the, a recent one, well, maybe not, maybe four years recent is the Dischampsia flexuosa mm-hmm. yeah. i love that plant yeah it does so well on our projects and it's a cool season grass so early on it just it really um it has such a nice color and then those mixtures of cool season and warm season grasses really create a nice backdrop then for the perennials that come and go throughout the season um and then so I, I could talk about perennials too. <laughs> oh yeah, go yeah, ahead. please do. Oh yeah, no, th- these guys do everything, and, and I'm so, sure the audience is is really familiar with a lot of the perennials that you're going to talk about, Kate. Yeah, so Coreopsis, um, a lot of Coreopsis uh, cultivars, they all do really well on green roofs. We use those a lot. The Petrohagia, Petrohagia saxifraga is not a native, but we have used that because it tolerates very shallow soils, or not very shallow, but the shallower soils of like a four-inch system, and it has an evergreen quality, um, evergreen habit, and has a pretty flower, and really does a great job of covering ground. Um, but back to the perennials, let's see some of our favorites: um, uh, Rebecca's and uh, Saladegos. Do we mm-hmm. use those a lot? Um, let's see. I'm trying to think of a project um, that we recently. Um, designed. Kate, um, would you use any of the, I'm thinking about the pycnanthemum um, genus, but are, are those so spready? Do you use any of those mint family kinds of plants? Yes. So that, so, so I'll get back to that because there's a good story with that one, but the Asclepius, oh. <laughs> the Asclepius tuberosa, mm-hmm. we use that a ton on our green roofs. Um, and we try and use that as much as we possibly can, just because of its importance in terms of, you know, monarch mm-hmm. butterflies and, and, um, and the, the biodiversity uh, benefits. But back to the, the pincanthemum, um, did I say that right? Pincanthemum, <laughs> yep. Yeah, the mountain mint. So we tried that on this project here in Asheville, North Carolina. We tried a lot of new plants on this particular project, and one of them was the mountain mint. And just because of its um, benefits for pollinators, this project uh, – was really inspired by the fact that Asheville was the first bee city USA. Mm-hmm. And so a real commitment to pollinators. And so we thought, okay, we're going to design this meadow. Let's really, uh, you know, focus on those types of plants. That's when we tried out the Asclepius, uh, mountain mint. I had no idea what that was going to do. And it has done very well. Um, we tried a Minarda also on that project that um, some of the plants, just like in at grade landscapes, disappear after a little while. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So they're around and then they slowly um, fade out. The Minardas do not hang around for too long. I know some um, of the root of that. Like it that, was yeah. definitely a, a surprise and we've used that on other projects, but only up here in the mountains. Mm-hmm. So I, I have a question for both of you actually, because the, the mountain mint made me think of this. So by doing a rooftop, you're eliminating some of the possible dangers that, that, you would have on the ground, like I'm assuming deer are not an issue on a rooftop, so you don't have to worry about planting for for deer resistant plants. But has there been any wildlife interaction that has surprised you, other than pollinator, maybe with with migrating birds or something that you've either had an issue with or a pleasant surprise with? Um, <laughs> there's some funny stories about the critters we find on green roofs. Um, uh, praying mantis, I'm just shocked at how many praying mantis we find on our roofs and how big they are. I mean, just, 
monsters. Um, so cool to find those. Um, a lot of mostly, yeah, mostly insects, but on a project down in South Carolina on the coast, we were maintaining a project and there was a fiddler crab up in the the grass, actually. Wow. Wow, That's, well, I was actually thinking, you know. I have a really bad joke about that, but. (laughs) (laughs) I was curious if rodents were an issue um, at all. We haven't, we have not seen that. Um, I would say maybe one or two projects, there's been like fire ants. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, But. No. Mm-mm. Do weeds become an issue? Like either. And like, I, I, I'd com- even expand it to like invasive plants. Do you yeah. have like invasive plants that show up, show up on these projects? Yes. Yeah. Right. Um, not as much as that grade because it is such a contained system. Mm-hmm. And, um, but yes, sometimes there, there was a, on a project, we, oh, a really fun project in Raleigh. This project is, uh, in an urban canyon because it sees no sun. And so that was a real challenge. We think of green roofs mostly full sun systems. And um, so we designed this green roof as a forest floor with native plants like Tiarella, Sedum Ternatum, um, native Columbine, uh, Mehania, Mehania Cordata. Did I say that right? I don't know that one. Um, I've heard the name, but I'm not familiar with it. It's an ever, it's a native ground cover. Anyways, um, that project uh, is is really fun and different, um, but we've been finding butterfly bush. There was a butterfly bush up there that took root. Uh-huh. It wasn't large. It was like a little seedling. And then um, like a penicetum or some sort of fountain grass found its wow. way up there, which was strange because they they certainly, we did not plant them, but I don't know if um, if they came in in the, in the growing media or... Well, that's you, you know it's funny because uh, butterfly bush, especially in the Pacific Northwest, is, West is banned as an in, uh, invasive, and that's one of those plants. People are like, oh, it's in my yard. I don't see it popping up anywhere. How can it be invasive? Well, there you go. That's, <laughs> that's <laughs> it, it. Obviously, wasn't planted there and showed up there. But um, uh, Shannon, what are some other plants when you get people calling you looking for advice on what they want to use on a green roof? What are some other plants that that you recommend? Yeah, well, well, Kate hit on several of them that that are really our top ones is, you know, the and and the especially the warm season ones, as I mentioned, you're really good at taking up water, but handling dry conditions. So um, the the Spirobola she mentioned, the pink, the Muhlenbergias Mm -hmm. do well, um, but uh, also having those cool season grasses like the Deschampsia. So also Deschampsia sespitosa is another one, the Flexuosa that Kate mentioned Um, also, and these are more Midwestern natives are the Budaluas. So Mm -hmm. Budalua gracilis, Um, Budalua curtipendula also Mm -hmm. is a really great green roof plant. You see that used quite a bit. Um, Folks probably know Budalua gracilis blonde ambition and is um, comes out of the plant select program um, in the intermountain region. And so it's really loves great drainage. I mean, those Budaluas really appreciate re- well-drained media mm-hmm. yet they can take up that water when it's present. So those do really well. I, I was also going back a little bit to that idea of weediness. I think also what has to be managed as with, for example, a meadow is what proportion of, you know, grasses and different mm-hmm. plants, especially those reseeders. So um, panicum, for example, you could put on a deeper green roof, but it can uh, reseed, especially the species, and it can come to dominate or some of the andropogons mm-hmm. as well. So I, I was actually going to ask you that because when you were saying warm season grasses, I started thinking of root root systems. Yeah, and I would, yeah. you uh, know, and I didn't know how challenging some of those were like uh, broom sedge or little blue stem. Um, are they successful in a green roof environment? Uh, do they like? I, I'm thinking they're the root systems, but do they just adapt and find a way to to work in that? They tend to spread out. I mean, we, I, I talk a lot when I talk about grasses about that branching fibrous root system, and sure, it will go down. 
if the soil profile will allow it, but they tend to spread out in shallower media. Um, it's more the reseeding that can can um, mm-hmm. be the part where you want that balance of species. I know Kata said for her, the little blue stem, the Schizocarium scoparium, haven't done as well, and they are in the southeast. Um, they're not as strong as they are in some other parts of the country. I think our humidity and the fungal pressures that we have, even on a green roof, the humidity, you know, um, can can start to be a problem for them. I love that mm-hmm. you said schizocarium. That's one that yeah. we're kind of, yeah. you know. That's, when, that's the when, big debate when, on when, the show. When we were talking about, like, pronouncing <laughs> Plant names, you know, we joke yeah. that there's two ways to say every plant name, and I don't know if anyone really knows what – unless you were a Latin professor, which is the correct pronunciation. So we love seeing who says it which way. Oh, yeah. There are probably three or four pronunciations yeah. for that like, one. Else. Like <laughs> Steve Castorani from North Creek says Gazacrium. And like when he said it, we're like, oh, have we been saying it <laughs> wrong? All the, We've been doing all this wrong for so <laughs> You know, it, that – that's I think all bets are off on that one. We just go for it. I just mumble my way through it, so I just like trail off. That's fine. As long as you say it with conviction. Conviction you know. and you hit all you hit all this uh what's it called? I'm my wife's an English teacher. She's gonna kill me for this. Oh, the the in little parts of the I'm oh, the, the, the word. syllables. The, the syllables. Yeah. Yeah. The, <laughs> what's, gonna, what's so funny is um little blue stem in the cultivars is the twenty twenty two perennial plant of the year from the perennial mm-hmm. plant association. So um, that's been one of the funniest parts of discussions is like, Oh my gosh, how do we talk about this with people? And we're saying, you know, they're never going to get it if we can't decide, but uh, hey, one, you know, a, we'll take it. A former employee of ours, her, her father-in-law loved hearing plant names and he felt that one sounded like a disease. And he <laughs> actually made shirts yeah. of like, uh, someone with like it was like a schiz- smiley face with little blue stem little blue hair, stem and it's like the- I have schizocarium scoparium. <laughs> like, oh, exactly. Oh, yeah, it's a little bit too close to schizophrenia. Uh, yeah, than, uh, you know. So it's uh, yeah. So oh, I that's a fun. I hate to do this, but we're we're hitting close to our hard time frame. So mm-hmm. I know we have to start winding down. But I sure. do have to say this: we've only scratched the surface, oh, yeah. and there's so much more I want to learn and know about, and we have to do that. We're we have to do a part two, um, please, at, at some point, um, sometime soon. Maybe we could do a follow-up on this. So um, I'm thinking the 100th episode. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> wow. What uh, a negotiator she is, huh? I love that idea. <laughs> um, so, you know, there's always a couple questions we love to, to ask as we wind down. And for each of you, just how did you – how did you find your way into this industry and what you're doing? What was that that path like? I'll let Kate go first. Oh, brother. Okay. <laughs> um, it's a long story, but I'll keep it short. Uh, so I always trace everything back to my childhood. I grew up on a farm in Pennsylvania and had just like free access to just wander around. And, you know, honestly, I didn't have, I didn't live in a neighborhood. And so I had a brother and a sister. I have a brother and a sister, but I was left, you know, to kind of explore on my own and plants were part of just like what I played with growing up. I mean, I just was surrounded by plants. I did not know the species names. I didn't really know their correct names, but I just always had my hands in plants. My father really loves trees. He, um, I just had, I just grew up with plants and then I, um, in college studied anthropology and started working in archaeology, fascinated by early humans and prehistoric environments and really interested in that connection that maybe I was trying to understand from my childhood of that deep connection that we have to nature. Um, and after doing that for a little while, discovered landscape architecture and went to school, got my master's in landscape architecture, but started going to cities and seeing urban areas and being fascinated by big cities and, and these amazing parks and the juxtaposition of nature in the city just got really excited about that. And then discovering green roofs as a result of that from my studies and in at college of design, and then my explorations and European cities 
And then I'm married to a plant ecologist who is also co-owner of the company who loves plants. Um, And so we started this company um, to basically explore this idea that wasn't really being done in the Southeast. But um, so that's kind of a quick timeline, but I would say what brought me here has been a foundation of like love for the land and curiosity that was never really bounded by, um, uh, you know, science or the arts. It was just always this real mixture for me. And now I find myself, you know, creating a company um, that is sort of doing the same thing and, and trying to help restore that connection between people and nature, no matter where they live. I love it. I love it. Shannon, how about you? Um, mine was, was, is not linear. Um, I started my work life actually as a social psychologist. I went to graduate school, um, was interested in the interaction of people and the social environment. So, um, did graduate work in that and worked as a social science researcher for a number of years. And, um, at some point realized, uh, that was probably not my path for the rest of my life and had meanwhile started becoming interested in plants and understanding those. I took a few courses at NC state because I was um, in the university system um, teaching and doing research and just said, this is it. I found it, Um, went back to school in horticulture um, at NC state and um, started working in the industry. I had a, a stint at uh, Niche Gardens, which I know native plant folks will may know of, um, and loved it. Started working at Hoffman Nursery and have been in the horticulture industry, um, gosh, probably almost 20 years at this point. So it was a not linear path, as I said, but like Kate, I just, um, it's a passion and I love what we do and I love this industry. And now the horticultural industry will never let you go. (laughs) (laughs) Let's hope not. That's the way it works. That's the way it works. So uh, we we round this out with it's always our most simple question yet hardest question, Um, and that is what is your favorite native plant? Shannon, we're going to start with you because you deferred on the last one. I know. You have to start with this one. Um, Bloodroot. Sanguinaria canadensis. Very nice. I, there's just something about that flower, the fact that it is ephemeral. Um, it just takes my breath away every spring. Awesome choice. Have we had anyone? I don't think so. I don't think so either. Maybe once, but I, I I'm thinking don't think so. Possibly Carolyn Clauba, yeah. but I don't it, remember. The other yeah. thing, Fran, is now that I know that there's a, a files function on Facebook groups, <laughs> I, I was like, I should probably go back and pick out everyone's favorite native plant because we really haven't had a lot of duplicates. No, we really haven't. Episodes, yeah. Which That's is so interesting that you haven't. Wow. No, it's it, it surprises me every time. I look forward to this because I'm waiting for for that duplicate, and it just never happens. So no pressure, Kate, at all. <laughs> 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 well, I I really you I knew you were going to ask this question, and I honestly I just can't do it. I, well, there are we, just so many, I mean, these are my friends we're talking about the plants. I just <laughs> cannot, it's like my children. I can't, I can't list the favor. I need those like early spring violets when they arrive just as much as like the fluffy carrots in the forest in the summer. I just, I can't, I, or the cheerful winter berries in the winter snow. I just can't. I can't choose a favorite. Well, the nice but, thing is you don't have to because most of our yes. guests ignore the, the request yeah. and, and list multiple. Yeah. So, <laughs> okay, so I will say that there's one that we just tried on a green roof that I love in some of my top favorites. And it's also an ephemeral like Shannon. It's um, the Mertensia. Uh, oh, uh, great choice. That's another one that has yeah. never been never been uh stated so we're about like batting a thousand yeah i love yeah. it <laughs> then the last thing we do is just uh give everyone a final thought you can promote something tie up loose ends really whatever you want i'm typically end up going last but i'm gonna go first because i had something pop up in my head that's more Ooh. of a question oh okay is there any residential green roofs i actually we actually i had that as a question but i'm like we well, can't yeah I- ask any more questions <laughs> 
there are so many questions to still go yeah. through. Oh, yeah. Um, and even plants, I, I just thought of some more for green news, but, but yes, we do, um, our company does an enormous scale of projects from very, very small residential park structure, green roofs, all the way to multi-story, multi-terrace, you know, complicated, big commercial government projects and everything in between. Uh, but we do quite a few residential projects every year. Awesome. I, I just knew people were going to listen to this and be fired up and want to have a green roof on their house. And I'm like, yeah. I don't even know if that's an option. Well, so. I was thinking the same thing. I'm like, we're we're going to excite people with this one, and they're going to say, how can I do this? Yeah, exactly. And and maybe that will be episode 100. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Who would like to go first on a final thought? You can use this time to summarize, uh, plug something, use it however you want to use it. We just give you the floor to, to use it. Whoever would like to go first, you can rock paper scissors. All right, that's our. I'll go first because right. I'm I'm sort of on you know off the cuff, but I, I would say I think um, I, I sort of am, speak a little bit to industry folks. I think that that we as an industry have just such a tremendous opportunity to help move green infrastructure and projects like green roofs forward, and it's. There's economic incentive for us. There's also the incentive like this is what these to me, these are the solutions that we have for climate change, for what's happening, for development, that this is the way forward. And plants are such an important part of that, that we need to be a part of every conversation that's happening at the national level, the regional level, state and city. So advocate for nature-based solutions at whatever level you are, wherever you are, please. That's a great point. That's a fantastic final thought. I should have went before you. And I (laughs) I would love to piggyback on that because Shannon just, just nailed it with it, with her comment and just that, you know, we can do this because of climate change and we can do this because of environmental reasons and economic reasons, but ultimately we need to be doing this for ourselves and to also remember that this is not just about um, economics and the environment, but also about the tremendous reward that we get as humans connecting with our environment and just, um, you know, just, just it really comes down to humans and our connection to nature and that this is an, a tremendous way to not just solve multiple climate related issues and economic challenges, but also um, help to really restore that connection between us and, and the land. Great, fi- great final thought. So I guess I have to go now. Yeah. You're last. Wow. I don't like that <laughs> position. Um, I, I think when we, we started this podcast, we kind of had a, we kind of envisioned the direction it would go, and it's gone in every direction but that, um, which I love. So as we go through this journey, and we're all on this journey, and we're all on different phases of this journey, don't always look to the obvious of things that can be done to to fix or create. You know, this is a wonderful example of of changing uh, perception and uses and function. Um, and it's outside the box, and it's really grown over the years. And there's there's so many other examples of this um, that there's always a way to get involved. So even if someone's not sold on one thing, maybe this is the way to get them involved. And don't discount anything. Just it, it can all it can all work. And this is just another example of a part of the journey. And and I'd love to see how this progresses over time and becomes more important and more important part of the journey because development's not going to stop. <laughs> I, I, that's that's pretty obvious. Um, but how can we make that development less impactful? And and this is a, one way to do one it. way to do it. Yeah, that's my final thoughts. All right. Well, that is it. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed listening to uh, Kate. Um, oh, I never updated that for you. I'm sorry. I know, I know. <laughs> <laughs> and oh. Kaya and uh, and Shannon Curry. We're going to have the links to their respective websites. Uh, on our Living website. Roots, and the then Hoffman Nursery on our website in the show notes. So make sure to check them out there. Uh, 
Thank you, everyone, for listening to Native Plants Healthy Planet presented by Pylons Nursery. Uh, we're going to give a big thank you to the egocentric Plastic Men for contributing our theme music. Make sure you stream or buy their songs wherever you consume music. And now that live music is back, make sure you go see some of your favorite live artists uh, live uh, when you get the chance. Uh, but be safe while you're doing it. You can follow us on Twitter at Pineland Nursery, Facebook at Pinelands Nursery NJ, Instagram at Pinelands Nursery, or Native Plants underscore Healthy Planet, and also YouTube at Pinelands Nursery. Don't forget about the question and comment line. You can call us at 215-346-6189. I will repeat that, 215-346-6189. Ask a question leave a comment. When we play it on a future episode of The Buzz, we will answer it the best we can or defer to an expert, which is pretty much anyone other than us. Uh, and we'll have Saul uh, weighing in with the winner of the Draw Saul contest on the next Buzz. So uh, make sure you look for that. And we also have the Native Plants Healthy Planet Facebook group, which just keeps growing leaps and bounds. And And I was just having this conversation last night with Lori Cleveland from mm-hmm. Sourland Conservancy, how respectful and kind and and loving everyone in that group is. And we love that we've uh, got to take a part in building that community, and you should all be proud of, of what you're doing and, and keep it going. Yeah. Uh, you can buy T-shirts and listen to the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast directly at www www.plantshealthyplanet.com. Um, the t-shirts there's a link at the, or there's a little uh, banner at the top of the page just click that it'll take you to our teespring store and just remember uh, all those designs were designed by me but we're not getting any of the money it's all going to nonprofits that we've had on uh, to help support their work 100 percent of what we make is going to them uh, when you do listen to our podcast whether it's on apple podcast spotify stitcher spotify wherever you're able to leave a review please do leave a five-star review and um, and if you can't leave a review, write to us and let us know how, what you think about us. And hopefully it's good. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, everyone. I'm Tom. And I am Fran. Thank you again, everyone. We're going to have a buzz episode next week. Again, it will be the winner of the Saul contest, and we're excited. To, it's been a while since we heard, heard from Saul. So hopefully he picks a winner. Who knows? Yeah. Hopefully he's not in the hospital. It's been a while. So make sure you tune in. It will be a good one. Uh, thank you again, everyone. Thank you, Shannon. Thank you, Kate. We appreciate your time. Uh, And until then, keep it native. Thank you for listening to the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast presented by Pinelands Nursery. Remember to like, share, follow, and comment.